0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're back in our text this morning. We're looking at verses 17 to 24. Um, we're looking at uh, this issue, all the issues surrounding marriage and um, divorce, and how do we think about singleness, and all of those things in this chapter is a a rich text, and and these verses form essentially the heart of the chapter as far as the principle, and so on. I just want to read them for us this morning as we uh, study them together. Paul says this beginning in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 17, he says, "...only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk." And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to become free, rather, do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called." Now, as you remember, just by way of review, uh, a few weeks ago, as we started chapter 7, we are looking, in, in beginning in chapter 7, all the way through to the end of the book in verse sixteen. chapter 16, excuse me, Paul's responding to a number of questions that the Corinthian church has asked him in response to um, just the Christian life. Um, they, he is responding in these chapters with wisdom and love and pastoral insight which is very, very important. And chapter 7 specifically deals with a host of issues related to singleness, marriage, and divorce, um, divorce and remarriage, and and all those things. How do we think about them? Now, up to this point, Paul's been pointing us down this path of wisdom and scattering his counsel across a very broad cross-section of, of, a, of the church. He has something to say to those who are married and those who are unmarried. He has something to say to those who are divorced, those who are widows or widowers, those who are in mixed marriages where your spouse is not a Christian. And Paul has something to say to every single group, uh, and it was a specific counsel to every single group. And the question, the lingering question that's in the background that they were asking him was, what do we do... As disciples of Christ, uh, what is our, uh, how do we think about these things? Because they didn't have the totality of the scriptures in hand, they didn't have the apostles, uh, you know, queued up, ready to email them a question they they had to write to Paul to get this information should should we get married is that a good thing should we ever as Christians be divorced and what if what if our spouse is not a believer how do we think about that and what if we're already divorced maybe maybe we we went through on that already can we ever remarry and and how do we relate to our spouse and if so you know how, how do we do that and um, and all those things are all those questions are kind of swirling around as we read the text And as we've said all along in the previous verses, uh, Paul's answer to that question is, it depends. It depends what you want, how to handle those things. Marriage, we said, is established by God. The scriptures make that clear. And marriage is not only established by God, it's defined by God. And what God has revealed to us in the word is that marriage is a sacred bond between one man and one woman, and we said that that bond is characterized by mutuality, exclusiveness, intimacy, and permanence and uh, and and God reveals this to us right at the very beginning of uh, of the of the Bible itself in Genesis 2, it says, For this reason God said a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and that they shall become one flesh. And verse 25 says the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we see this picture of mutuality, exclusiveness between a husband and a wife, intimacy, and the permanence of that. And Jesus then goes on to reaffirm that commitment that, that truth about marriage in the Gospels, in Matthew 19 and verse 6, the, the, the crowd came to him with those questions, they kind of had a gotcha question for him, and he reiterates this, he says, so they are no, Matthew 19 verse 6, they are no longer two, but one flesh, and what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus affirms God's ideal, God's design, that was true from the Garden of Eden onward. Uh, one man and one woman for life, and uh, so then the the course we know from the text the the crowd asks, well, what about divorce? Because Moses permitted us, he said to to uh, to pursue divorce under the law, and he under, he goes on to clarify that Jesus does that the divorce is a concession because of the hardness of man's sinful hearts. And even then, he said it's only permissible in God's eyes in two particular circumstances. One of those, um, he reiterates in that text, which is immorality on the, by, uh, the part of one spou- by one's spouse, or, and as, G- as Paul has explained to us in verses 15 and 16, in the case of abandonment by a spouse. But those are the only two contexts. Divorce was not part of God's plan from the beginning. And uh, he goes on to say that. He says, it was not this way from the beginning. It's interesting, though, that when Jesus held up God's ideal for marriage before the crowd, um, who they lived in a culture where where divorce was embarrassingly common. It was so frequent uh, that the response by the disciples was, wow, if a relationship with a man and his wife is like that, um, <laughs> it is better not to get married. Because, that I mean, it was just so different than what they were... Uh, what God had revealed to them in their word. And I think what you see is they're beginning to understand what Paul is reiterating here in this text, and that is that marriage isn't necessarily for everybody. And that's really his point. Um, Paul has already taught us some of those important things in verses 8 to 16 about singleness and marriage and even divorce to help God's people walk in wisdom through life's complexities. And the question is, what do we do now that we're disciples of Christ? And Paul's answer to that question, and it's, it's highlighted in our text this morning, is stay where you are with some exceptions. Stay where you are with understanding that there will be exceptions, some exceptions. So God's wisdom in response to that question for most of us is, um, not everyone, but for most of us is stay where you are. Stay in the position, the context where you are. Are you unmarried? Paul has a word for you. In verse 8, he says to the unmarried and to the widows, I say to them, it is good if they remain even as I. Paul, we know at this point, is single. He's no longer married. We don't know why, maybe his wife passed away, maybe she left him, who knows, maybe he divorced her, I don't know, he doesn't say that, I don't think that's implied anywhere, but, but we don't know, he's not married, he probably was as a Pharisee, and he says, listen, I wish if you're unmarried that you could be just like me. And then he says, goes on to say, are you married? Well, verse 10, he goes on to say, but to the married I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. So Christian discipleship, he goes on to say, doesn't give anyone permission to, to divorce their spouse just because um, that's, you know, somehow that's a more holy way of living or something like that. He says, no, that's, if you're married, then you stay married. Are you married to an unbelieving spouse who's agreed to stay with you in marriage Paul has a word for you in verses 12 and 13. He says, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Christian discipleship obligates you in a context like that where your spouse isn't a Christian but they're perfectly happy to stay married, you should be perfectly happy to be married to them and to invest in that relationship just like you would have in any other context because you he says have a sanctifying influence in your home, over your spouse, and even over any children that God will give you. And then he goes on to say lastly in verses 15 and 16, if you're, unmar- if you're married to an unbeliever and they, they want to or have already removed themselves from the marriage, he says, listen, in verse 15, let them leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, for God has called us to peace. So Christian discipleship permits you to let them go in a context where they are willing or want to be remo- they want to remove themselves from that marriage. This is the abandonment that he speaks of. And he says, "Listen, you don't know what the future holds. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? It's in God's hands at this point." He says, "You do not need to worry about it anymore. Through faith in Christ, his point being, through faith in Christ, you and I can make much of God in whatever context He has placed us. And that is our consuming passion, is to glorify God in every single context. The Word of God and the Spirit of God have made that clear. But from the moment we can talk, our hearts and, and our hearts effortlessly try to wiggle free from the grip of our consciences and our circumstances. I, I feel like uh, the longer I'm in ministry, the more I realize my heart is a professional excuse maker. Like, that is its job. I feel like sometimes it's like water, always traveling, wanting to travel the path of least resistance. And we're always, always cooking up fresh fresh reasons why we can't obey God or shouldn't have to obey God in his commandments in one particular situation or Another, and when we cannot discount or deny our sinful desires any longer, then we will often try and change our circumstances, such that we do not have to uh, wrestle with those things anymore. And a lot of times, we'll invest those choices to change our circumstances with um, with religious or spiritual significance. We'll say, you know, I, I've heard uh, people say, "I want to be patient with my coworkers, but you know, they're just so lazy." And they're so difficult to deal with, and and they're all so so liberal. So I'm just going to get another job where I can find people who are uh, more like-minded. Maybe even some of them will be Christians. Or I know God calls our family to love and and pray for these brothers and sisters whom we have some some secondary disagreements with. But but you know we're just they're not as mature as us. So we're just gonna we're just gonna go to another church where people see this or that. Uh, a secondary or tertiary issue, the way we do, or, or sure, I I know I'm supposed to introduce myself and reach out to these people in the church that are they're somewhat new, but but I have all these other relationships that are already kind of forged and ready to go, and and uh, you know I want to serve them, and so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna focus on the people I already know and and not wor- not you know move forward to to reach out to these people who are newer right we just we always impl- we always are looking for excuses while we don't have to do what god's word calls us to do and then we invest those choices with spiritual language spiritual significance to uh, absolve our consciences and rather than bend our attitudes and our actions to conform to god's will we seek to bend our circumstances to fit our will and then we invest those choices with with uh, spiritual significance such that it seems like, well, we have no other option. I mean, if we want to obey God in this, that's what we have to do. And that's what was happening in Corinth. Rather than embracing the setting that God had placed them, they were trying to alter their context to something that would be, in their minds, better, more suitable, and, as they would say, more godly. And that was the issue in the beginning, remember in chapter 1, they're saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman, right? So, so there, there's, this, there's this, like, we'll, we'll just invest some spiritual significance to our choices. And Paul's emphasis in this section is that the gospel makes the circumstances of your life and my life largely irrelevant to glorifying himself. It's largely immaterial, and so chasing after a change of circumstances is largely immaterial. Moreover dressing up our changes in what uh, are changing our context dressing that up in religious clothing doesn't make it any more significant or any more necessary you know if you put a monkey in a suit it's still a monkey right it's not a ceo right so we can dress it up however we want but it doesn't make it necessary or change what it, what the thing is underneath you're calling to christ sanctifies whatever context you are in for Christ. His calling you and I into fellowship with himself, Father, Son and Holy Spirit by faith, it so transforms our situation in life. Whatever that is for you or for me, it so transforms that that you can glorify God in wherever he has put you, wherever he has placed you. Listen, the color of the grass on the other side of the fence, what color is it? Is it it's, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what color it is. By the way, it's not greener. This is the good thing about, another good thing about the good news this is, this is, the gospel extinguishes the fires of discontent, it extinguishes the fires of dissatisfaction, it, dis, it, it extinguishes the fires of despair about our circumstances, and at the same time, it outfits us with faith and hope and steadfastness in every circumstance. And what Paul is teaching us in our text this morning is that the disciples as a disciple of Christ, all of the providential twists and turns of life can be sanctified for God's glory. All of it can be used for his purposes. He does, And he does this, he, he makes his case as he often does by using the scriptures and some examples. And the examples he uses too this, in this text that capture the great the really some of the great distinctions that divided the world, as he wrote to these people, he is pointing out that the religious distinction between Jew and Gentile is irrelevant, and the social distinction between slave and free is irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. Paul couldn't have picked settings that dominated the culture any more than these these two settings. The this, this divide between the religious divide, ethnic and religious divide between Jew and Gentile, and the social divide, distinction between slave and free. And so I just want to pull apart those two examples and then we'll draw it all to a a conclusion at the end. So the first um, point that Paul makes in verses 17 to 20 is this, the gospel makes ethnic religious setting, whatever ethnic religious setting we're in, it makes that irrelevant. Irrelevant. The principle that orients the whole text is is laid out for us in verse 17. He says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. This sentence is a tied by the grammar and the context back to what he says in verse 15. It's a conjunction at the beginning of verse Uh, 17. And we all know conjunctions function, right, is to hook together words and phrases and clauses, right? So it's connecting what he's saying here back to verse 15. He says, yes, a believing brother or sister who's married to an unbeliever that wants out of the marriage is not bound in such cases, but or only or nevertheless, altering your present situation is not the rule, Rather, the rule is this: as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. God's call in our lives is front and center in this whole passage. You, you just look for words that are repeated, and the word "call" or "calling" is used throughout these verses. And uh, the gospel, and He uses it two ways. There's a little bit of like uh, wordplay going on here. The call. It has um, two, he's looking at our calling from two different angles. The gospel's effectual call, he says, breaks through our spiritual deafness, giving us ears to hear, ears to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. And he also points out that that call comes in a particular calling or a particular setting. That setting is described in the beginning of verse 17 as the Lord has assigned to each one. Some of you heard the gospel like my wife did at a Christian camp as a teenager living in a pagan home. Some of you heard the gospel and embraced the truth of Christ as a single adult through maybe a coworker or a friend or um, someone, a, a family member who opened up the scriptures to you. Some of you maybe heard the gospel as young children and you've never known anything but Christ and you've always trusted in him and, and, and you've always looked to him for the forgiveness of your sins and obeyed him out of a heart of faith. Whatever the Paul's point is that when the scales were removed from your eyes and my eyes and you trusted Christ in his life and his death and in his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins like that happened in a particular context. Maybe it was in your home as a young person, maybe it was while you were serving in the military, maybe it was while you lived in another country, maybe it was while you were married with children to an unbeliever, whatever the context, Whatever the context, when God called you to himself, he took you and your situation to himself and sanctified it. When God calls a person, he calls them and he calls the context that they're in apart to himself. That's why he says, In this manner, in what manner? In the manner Christ assigned to you when God called you, he says, Thus walk. This is Paul's, he said, instruction in every In every church. So he's making it, he said this several times in the letter already. This is not something that's unique to them, as the Corinthian church. Paul says, Your theology isn't wrong, or my theology isn't wrong, your theology is wrong. (laughs) I'm teaching this in every church context, and you've got it wrong. You understand this is God's instruction to all believers. The gospel comes to lost sinners wherever we are as God's gracious gift and it does it dissolves any it, it dissolves any religious significance to that context where we find ourselves. So so the good news is just as effective to save and sanctify a lost sinner to live for Christ in a in communist China in the same way just as much and effectively as it is able to save and sanctify a lost sinner sitting carefree in the pew of a church Right uh, of the red estate in the union, right? It does not matter. It does not matter. And uh, what better way for Paul to make that point than to employ than to point out and uh, is to employ an ethnic distinctive that that has religious significance, that of circumcision or Jewishness or Gentileness, and that's what he does in verses eighteen and nineteen. Paul uses this um, distinction, this ethnic kind of religious distinction between Jew and Gentile to show them that their setting is irrelevant. He says, verse 18, was any man called when he was already circumcised? In other words, were you a Jew when you came to faith in Christ? That's what it means. If so, he says, he is not to become uncircumcised. You do not need to renounce your Jewish heritage. You don't have to run away from that. He says, is anyone being called while in uncircumcision? That is, were you a Gentile when you came to faith in Christ? If so, he says, he is not to be circumcised. You don't need to convert to Judaism to be saved. That was the determination that was laid out in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council. That was the question that was burning. Do we have to convert to Judaism to get access to Christ? And James says, no, that's not necessary at all. So simply put, being saved as a Jewish person or a Gentile uh, in that context has no bearing on whether you can glorify God in that context with your life. Wherever and whatever you were when God called you is what you still are, and there is no need to change. Romans 10 verse 4 makes that clear, "...for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." In other words, you don't. the law, those who are Jewish, don't need to hold fast to all the prescriptions under the law because the law never saved you to begin with. And it certainly doesn't matter in that sense for our salvation when it comes to Christ who fulfilled the law. The gospel of grace cuts across all ethnic and religious contexts. That's why he can say like he does in verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. The the cross exposes that the works of the law for righteousness, that is impossible. You cannot save yourself by works of the law. What does matter then as we think about it? What, What does matter? Ethnic distinctions don't matter. Even ethnic distinctions with religious overtones, he says, are irrelevant to living a godly life. So, what matters? Paul says in verse 19, at the end what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. What does matter is faith fueled obedience. Faith fueled obedience as Paul says in Galatians 5 and verse 6 for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love that is what he's ta- that is what matters obedience like we talked about last Sunday that rises out of a grateful heart for Christ's saving work that is what that's where it's at that's what matters and then he ends Again, in verse 20, by restating the principle, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Paul says, you Christian live out your Christian life, your calling to Christ in whatever calling or context you are where God called you to himself. You can be a Christian in whatever station in life God has assigned to you and therefore you do not need to change situations. Let your calling to Christ sanctify your calling in Christ. This is the first example that he gives. Secondly, in verses 21 to 24, he points out that the gospel not only makes ethnic and religious context settings irrelevant, the gospel makes social settings irrelevant. Look at verse twenty-one. He says, Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you're able to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Very similar um, point that he's already made. But like Paul does in his own to do, he, you know, it's like the, you know, the blows of a hammer, it's driving the nail a little bit deeper it's 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 pushing the truth a little bit further into our hearts but from a different angle one of the most distinctive and cultural uh, distinctive cultural features of the roman world was this distinction between the slave man and the free right we we live in a context in our in our country in our culture where social standing is very dynamic it's, it's it moves uh, uh, absolute nobodies can rise up to lead billion-dollar companies and become lo- incredibly influential on a societal level. And bluebloods that come from generations of wealth and power can self-immolate into total obscurity. In other words, it's, it's, our social standing is very dynamic. It can change very much over the course of our lives. That was not the case in that day. Not the case. The social strata were much more fixed. If you were born a slave, you would likely die a slave. If, if you were born a free man, you would probably die a free person. So this creates a potential problem for the Corinthians. What if, what if you come to Christ in a social stratum that is not the best for living for Christ? What if, what if I can't live a godly life? Am I doomed to a life of uselessness for Christ, based on where I was born, where I'm, where Christ finds me. You know, And, and therefore, should, if that's the case, if I'm in a less than ideal setting, should I throw off that cultural standing and maybe even violently rise up to ascend to a better level so that I can be more godly? I mean, that's, that's a legit question. And Paul's answer is, you don't need to do that. There's no need for that. The gospel makes that unnecessary. Paul's command in verse 21 is basically this. Whatever your situation was at the time of your calling, don't worry about it. Don't let that be of concern to you. Your calling in Christ eclipses your social standing. So does that mean then, as you read this, you might be thinking in the back of your mind, does that mean we must Remain in the setting that God saves us when we come to Christ. Is Paul, by saying what he says here in these verses, is he forbidding any kind of change uh, of social standing? You know, and uh, is this is Paul reinforcing kind of a a rigid class structure uh, like you would see in a caste system that um, is very true in a Hindu? Uh, context or other Eastern cultures. Is that, is that what he's saying? Is that, is that what he's implying by what he's saying in these verses? And I would say not at all. The force of his exhortation here isn't once a slave, always a slave. The force of his exhortation is don't let it bother you. Don't be concerned about it. If you were a slave, you really didn't have a lot of options in that day. You, you couldn't just choose not to be a slave. Um, And that would be very discouraging. You didn't have the ability to move up. Paul recognizes that. So he says, don't be concerned about it. Don't worry. You can glorify God right where you are in life. But he says, if you have an opportunity to pursue freedom, by all means, go ahead and do that. Rather, he says, go for it. Because he knows as a free man that that obviously would be much more useful, much more helpful. Verse 21, he says, listen, don't worry about it, but if you're able to become free, rather do that. So Paul is not saying that we must stay in the station in life that God calls us. He's simply pointing out that wherever God has called us, we can glorify him. And then he backs that up in verses 22 and 23 with um, a couple of theologically driven reasonings uh, reasons. Uh, that help him, uh, help the reader and us understand why he can say that. Um, it's one thing to make the claim, but what's the evidence to that claim that you're, that you're making? Um, so, he points out first that neither slavery nor freedom counts for anything to the one who is called into fellowship with Christ. Verse 22, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free Is Christ's slave the called in the Lord's slave? That's literal translation. Is the Lord's freedman? He says, If you were a slave when God got a hold of you in the gospel, like Onesimus was in a book of Philemon, on the lamb, running away from his owner, having taken something of value, and, and yet somehow God and Paul brought Paul and Onesimus together, and he heard the gospel, and now he's a believer. He says, if you're a slave when you are responded to God's call in the Lord, guess what? That call that you've been given by God's grace means that you are live under spiritual freedom. And um, even though your earthly situation hasn't changed, you are the Lord's freedman. On the flip side, if you are free when God called you, don't let that go to your head either. Because God has called you to Himself and you are a slave of righteousness, Yes, we have been set free in Christ, but our relationship with Christ is a relationship that Romans 6 and 8 describes as that of being a slave of Christ. So, so the slave on earth, he says, is the Lord's free man, and the free man on earth is the Lord's slave. Your social setting doesn't matter. It does not matter. It is irrelevant to living a godly life. He presents a final theological piece of evidence in verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. On one level, so, so Paul makes a statement here in verse 23 that strikes at both groups. Uh, one would read it one way and understand it one way, and one would read it another On one level, Paul speaks to the free person, the person who lives as a freed man on earth. He says, through Christ's calling, you're a slave of Christ. But at the same time, he speaks to the slave on earth, and he says, through Christ's calling, your freedom has been purchased. You have been bought with a price. The slave is a free person, and the free person is a slave because all have been purchased by Christ through his blood on the cross. The, the slave is still socially a slave, but in Christ he is both free and a slave. The free person is still socially free, but Christ, in Christ he is both slave and free. No matter where you are in life, you have the same standing and the same responsibility to God. And so he says, do not become slaves of men. What does he mean by that? What what is that implying? I don't think Paul's simply saying, don't sell yourself into slavery, like, in a social setting. Although, certainly, he would not encourage that. He's already made it clear. He's like, it's better to be free on earth. So, in one level, he is saying, "Don't, don't do that if you don't have to. But he's also speaking here... Um, figuratively, with, metaphorically. And I think this harkens back to what he's already said in chapter 1. He says, "...because the slave is both free and a slave of Christ, and the free person is both a slave and free in Christ, they should not let themselves come under bondage to human wisdom, man's wisdom. We are, you and I are slaves of one another, and yet we have been set free." He says, don't let yourself be brought into bondage by this human perspective that your social situation matters. Don't become anxious about glorifying Christ where He's called you. That's worldly thinking. Don't go there. Don't, don't subject yourself to that kind of thinking again. We need to, this is this, these verses are calling us to have a more heavenly mindset. You and I need to have a more heavenly mindset, like the force of gravity. Our heart's gaze always seems to get pulled back to earth and looking at things at a purely circumstantial level. And we are called here by Paul to embrace who we are in Christ and where our citizenship ultimately lies at the end of the day. We are adopted sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are citizens of heaven, eagerly awaiting the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform, the scripture says, the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. We have been rescued, 2 Corinthians says, excuse me, Colossians says, from the domain of darkness, and we have been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. I mean, that's who we are as believers. We need to stop being so fixated on our social context. Or our religious background. A number of years well, actually it wasn't that long ago now, that I think about it. A couple of years ago, I had a conversation with a, a longtime acquaintance friend, and he was a missionary. He was serving uh, in a difficult context uh, for many years with his family, and he had decided that it was time for them to come off the field and to pick up ministry here in the States. And he, uh, he had a lead on an opportunity to pastor here somewhere in the greater northern Virginia area. So he reached out um, to me, and we were just, he's like, I'd love to just get your, your um, I don't know, your input, because you know the area and whatever. He says, um, I'd love to give you a call, and we can talk about it. So we did. He gave me a phone call, and, and uh, we were talking about this and that, catching up a little bit. And then he, it, all of his questions, though, related to... Um, this, this potential pastoral ministry setting he was looking at, all of his questions and concerns were, were about the politics of our area. Everything. Um, and, and the direction that things were moving in, on that level. And um, I got off the phone and I thought to myself, what difference does that make? Like, you, you have an opportunity to pastor a church. Like, did people around here not need the gospel? I mean, what difference does it make? You've been on the field preaching the gospel for 20 years. Why does it matter? And and I I thought, are, are the people in our community not worthy of the good news? Are they not worthy of having the scriptures taught to them and being shepherded and discipled? I mean, you know where the gospel light shines brightest? In the darkness. In the darkness. You can glorify God wherever he's placed you. And I felt like saying, brother, if he's going to put you in a church here, then praise God. Because I know he's a trustworthy shepherd. I know he's a good Bible teacher. I know he knows the true gospel and he wants the right things. But he but was so fixated on, on external circumstances. Listen, the gospel makes ethnic, religious settings irrelevant. The gospel makes our social setting irrelevant. And the logic of Paul's argument here is simple. If God can sanctify these settings and make them irrelevant to glorifying himself, then you can certainly honor God in whatever marriage context you find yourself. Married, unmarried, widowed, divorced, married to an unbeliever, it doesn't matter. His argument here is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he's, his point is that if it can be true in this context, it can certainly be true in this other context. Whenever you play a card game or a board game, there's always some resource that's dealt out to you. Um, and it's, it's dealt to you. You don't choose it. It's providentially dealt out to you. Inevitably, with most games, the, over the course of gameplay, you have an opportunity to trade in some of those cards in um, in hopes of getting better cards. Hopefully, allowing you to play to win. And the thinking goes: if I can just get a better hand, you know, I can accomplish the object of the game and I can win. In Christ, we've all been dealt a winning hand. The deck's been stacked in our favor. We all are holding a royal flush. We're all holding blackjack. We all got park, place, and boardwalk with, like, four hotels on them, right? I mean, talk about. (laughs) Married believers haven't been dealt a better hand or a worse hand by God. Unmarried believers haven't been dealt a better or worse hand by God believers married to an unbeliever haven't been dealt a better or worse hand by God. So we don't need to make excuses, and we don't have to change our circumstances, and we certainly don't need to invest our pursuit of those changes with spiritual significance. You don't need better cards. You need to play the winning hand that God's already dealt you in Christ. When you come to Christ, all that belongs to him now belongs to you and to me. Everything. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I mean, that is just unbelievable. Romans 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. You know, we're, everything that belongs to him is ours by faith. So coming to Christ means bringing whatever God has given you, wherever God has placed you, bringing that triumphantly into God's service. Now, if you have an opportunity to do otherwise, fine, that's great. He's not saying you're locked in wherever you are forever. Uh, And people move and people change and situations unfold and life happens. But he's saying wherever God has placed you, be content and serve him Every setting has its own opportunity to glorify God. Are you a Jew? You can glorify God in your Jewish context. Are you a Gentile? You can glorify God in that context. Are you married? You can glorify God in that context. Are you unmarried? You can glorify God in that context. do, Do you live in California? You can glorify God in that context. I've done it. Most of you have done it, actually. Everyone in this church has lived in California at some point. The point is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that is Paul's point. You can glorify God wherever he's saying, so be content, be settled, trust him, live for him, glorify him. and, uh, And he will empower you to do that. And this principle... Orients everything else he said in this chapter. Stay where you are. You can do that. You don't need to be single to glorify God. You don't need to be married to glorify God. You don't need to have a believing spouse to glorify God. You can do that wherever God has placed you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that your grace is so triumphant, so powerful, so effective, that it doesn't matter where we are. We could be in the darkest place on earth and our gospel light can shine forth in that. you can empower us to live for you and to honor you. Lord and, and we know um, firsthand um, some difficult settings and we know that uh, there are believers in who are severely persecuted where their faith in Christ will cost them everything, their family, their livelihood, their safety, their stability, everything is on the line for you. And yet, you still empower them to live for you. And we can come to you and know that whatever context you call us, that can be put in service for your purposes. Lord, help us to have that heavenly mindset. Help us to look above and not below. And empower us to live for you this week, Lord, in all those things in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.